0: Are we live? Are we live? <laughs> how you guys doing? We are trying out a couple new things today, and I hope you're doing well. I guess YouTube just decides to go live without actually asking me to go live. It's a good thing for once I wasn't uh, jamming my finger in my ear for uh, for fun and, and profit. So hi, guys. How you doing? Uh, the 18th of January, 4 p.m. Eastern. Standard time. Oh, is there no no audio? Yeah, really? Really? Yeah. You see me, but you cannot hear me, you say. All right. You can. You can. You can or you cannot? Ah, oh, there's nothing more than having all of the delightful edits. Thinking finger in your nose, you can hear. Okay. All right. Well, listen, I hope that we're going to have better luck live streaming today. I have lost a, a little bit of weight and uh, I appreciate everybody noticing. Sucking in the cheeks. Audio is fine. And um, yeah, I hope you guys are having a wonderful day. And I hope that you have some great questions for me. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing from you guys. And sound is good. Is the, is the, is the, no dropping frames or anything like that everything's good all right sound is working so listen i i wanted to point out something here just before we dig into this stuff my friends that um my gosh um the uh the james o'keefe stuff is really really powerful Uh, you gotta follow project veritas please help support them if you can it's uh, really, really powerful stuff, and the latest um, is one of Bernie Sanders, uh, um, someone in his organization, some regional someone, something, is talking about, you know, hey, the Germans, they had, they had themselves a big problem after World War II, you see, because they had to uh, denazify the population. So they, you know, they threw them in camps and they, the, the, the gulags and this, that, and the other. Uh, just a whole series of monstrous stuff around the re-education camps and the despair over reason that characterises that kind of stuff. Uh, it's um, it's really really monstrous, and um, that is something that, if it was any other candidate, if it was anyone on the right who was talking about throwing leftists into indoctrination camps to scrub their brains of bad thinking and, and wrong thought and so on, or if it was somebody who was saying, well, you know, actually, no, I'm not going to paraphrase that because that's something you always have to be careful of. Someone's going to take that little snippet out. But if somebody was saying, uh, gosh, the, um, the uh, the issue uh, with, with concentration camps really wasn't that big an issue because they were just trying to re-educate people. They were trying to, you know, you could get conjugal visits and, and, uh, and you got paid minimum wage. And, I mean, if you tried in the Second World War, imagine you tried saying that about Auschwitz or Dachau or anything like that. Uh, people would rightfully go quite mental and say that you were downplaying the disasters, the horrifying moral injustices and mass murder of that kind of Holocaust. I mean, it would be really, really, it would be like naming your internet show after a Holocaust group or a uh, genocide group, you know, like the Young Turks, something like that. So, uh, okay, let's, so I'm just just pointing out that it is um, some crazy stuff that's going on over there in the Bernie campaign. And uh, I wish I wish it wasn't going on like that, but uh, unfortunately, it just plain is. All right. Hey, Steph, what's your take on the ex-royals living in Vancouver? Well, I think Meghan Markle. Markle? I think that's her name. Markle. Not so much with the sparkle, but more with the Markle. So she's actually uh, settling down in Toronto at the moment, I believe. And... Uh, I'm of two minds. I'm not a big fan of hers. And, you know, she's very kind of race politics kind of person, all that kind of stuff. So I'm not a huge fan of hers. But I will say this, that, uh, boy, the the royal family, any family who protected someone like Prince Andrew for a long time, and, you know, there are those photos which kind of demand an answer. There's Prince Andrew staying friends with Jeffrey Epstein, even after Jeffrey Epstein was convicted of the crimes that he was convicted of, which were horrible and ghastly and monstrous and, and uh, ridiculously lengthy in common. So if you marry into a family and they're protecting someone like Prince Andrew, do you really want to hang around at Thanksgiving dinner and break bread with those people? I'm not entirely, actually, completely and totally sure that you would be or should be doing that kind of stuff. Uh, but, of course, you've married into that family. So you've kind of made your bed already. So I don't know. It's uh, it's interesting. It's interesting. All right. What do we have here? Um, oh, yeah. The GMP report that's come out about the grooming Pakistan gangs in the UK. Okay. Grooming is a euphemism. Pakistan is a euphemism. And the UK is fast becoming a euphemism for an actual country. Uh, it's chilling. I mean, can you imagine, well, I mean, I have as a, as the father of a a girl. I mean, imagine if I had stayed in the UK, if my mother hadn't hauled ass to the colonies back in 1977. Imagine if I had stayed in the UK and I had a daughter and the daughter had been preyed on in this manner. Oh, can you imagine? Can you picture, can you dream of what that would be like as a father? I mean, I, I can't I can't picture it. I can't picture it. I I you know there are these horrible stories, of course, of the fathers knowing exactly the houses where their daughters are being held captive. There are just horrifying stories of the fathers beating on the door, calling the police, trying to get help to get their children, their daughters out there. There are tales of girls who are kept as sex slaves and their babies are sold off. A series of babies sold off. I actually, many years ago, it was delicate about details here because it's not other people's fault that they knew me before I became prominent. But many, many years ago, I knew a woman from India who had been uh, kidnapped and uh, raped and forced to marry, and her child had been taken from her when she attempted to flee, or she got out finally. And, um, I mean, it's it's monstrous, it's monstrous. And there are new reports that as many as 100,000 young Mostly British, uh, no, mostly wh- all British, mostly white. Some Sikh girls, and others, of course, uh, being preyed upon by these uh, paedophile gangs. And um, I mean, to me, this is a uh, if it was if it was any organised group, organised foreign national group, this would be considered an act of war. And um, it's monstrous uh, that the entire country is not up in arms. And and it is astonishing to me. And also, of course, I think there's got to be a new rule. I don't mean to sort of steal creepy Bill Maher's book, but a new new rule. New rule is something like this. If you get called horrible names for accurately talking about horrible things in the world, first being called a conspiracy theorist and then maybe a racist and then maybe a xenophobe and then maybe a white nationalist and then maybe a white supremacist and you get called all of these horrible names for saying terrible stuff is happening in this world. If it turns out, you see, that you were correct, well, you should, of course, get massive apologies. You should, of course, get reinstated to wherever you've been kicked off. Think Loomer. And the world should turn around and say, my God, we as sorry that we called you... I mean, Tommy Robinson was talking about this for many years and was acted against in about as savage a way outside of a totalitarian dictatorship, as can be occurred. And he just went to what was a Denmark and got a free speech prize, which I believe he more than deserves. And it's uh It's monstrous, so everyone who talks about oh immigration, this, that, and the other, the basic reality is you are going to have to deal with the fact that this kind of immigration has resulted in the mass rape of about a hundred thousand little girls, and I'm sure some boys. What was there? one story of a girl being ground up and sold in a shop it is um it is monstrous it is it is beyond monstrous really and my heart breaks for these girls my heart breaks for these girls and for their families and i mean gosh if if you've been kidnapped and confined and raped repeatedly and and had your children i mean i'm like i hate to say it because i you know never say never but really what what is your what is your capacity to pair bond in the future what is your capacity to have any kind of normal life what is your capacity to have a healthy bond with your future children this is what i mean when i say it's kind of like an act of war because you are really not just undermining but in some cases in many cases i'm sure destroying the capacity for the existing culture to continue so yeah it is um it is absolutely monstrous all right let's hit questions i'll try and keep these short How to recover from childhood emotional neglect? Hmm, okay. That's a a great question. Neglect is one of these things that's very, very tough to recover from. You know, I don't want to put myself in the hugely lucky category, but there was some positive aspects to the abuse that I received as a child, namely that it was literally in your face, it was violent, uh, it was uh, chaotic and disruptive and so on. Neglect is very deeply humiliating in a way that violence is not. Violence, at least you have the attention of your, quote, caregiver, and you can give your caregiver, I know this sounds kind of creepy, but it's true nonetheless, that you can give your caregiver some value in terms of being what Lloyd DeMoss called a a poison container. In other words, your, um, your, your mother, your father, or both are in a bad mood. They can take it out on you. At least you're providing some dark, sinister value to them. And neglect, though, is, is really terrible. I just did a call-in show with a fellow who wanted to know how he could meet a, a good woman. And one of the things that he was dealing with was that when he was 18, his family dropped him off at a homeless shelter where he lived or tried to live for two years before he managed to get his himself started. Which is a kind of neglect, of course, right? An abandonment, really. So neglect is really tough. Uh, Neglect is really, really tough. And the way that you deal with it is you have to denormalize the neglect. You have to denormalize the neglect. Abuse, I believe, repeats itself when we normalize The abuse and universalize it. Normalization and universalization is kind of the same thing, right? So when I was younger, I thought deep down, I didn't think this consciously, I was still very sort of unformed and ill-informed, but I thought kind of deep down that women had a particular kind of nature that was varying degrees of pole similar to my mother or my friend's mother's or the other dysfunctional parents that were in our particular level fairly deep but not at the very bottom of hell and so what you do is you say oh well that's this, this female nature it's female nature and male nature and and you you have to try and, and there's a reason for that of course it's not because we just love to universalize although we kind of do but it's not just because of that it's because we evolved in small communities right 50 people 80 people maybe 100 people we would involve, we evolved in tribes in small villages in farming communities in fishing communities just and and so there was not a huge amount of difference in the people around us when we were growing up and so female nature when you're talking about maybe 25 to 50 women maybe 75 women and you know when you're picking from the pool of young women just as they're picking from you the pool of young women is probably like 10 or 20 of those maybe who are available maybe even less but 10 or 20 now there's just not going to be a massive amount of variety between those 10 and 20 people with 10 and 20 girls right i mean there's just not going to be a huge amount of variety so extrapolating from that is not it's not crazy hold on a second Sorry, yeah, it's not, it's not crazy to extrapolate from that. It, in the same way that if you look at your parents, you are looking at, you know, kind of by definition, Jesus discounted, you are looking at sexually and therefore genetically successful human beings. In the same way, if you have a, a brother who's much older or a sister and they get married, then, then that's the template, so you, as a son, you wanted you, you're programmed to do what your father did because it worked for him, and because you exist, and so you can kind of go off the beaten path, so to speak, and say, "Well, I'm going to try something completely new, totally new, wildly new." Yeah, well, maybe Genghis Khan style or or something like that. You'll you'll find a way to make that work, but it's really risky, and you wouldn't do that if you had a reasonable certainty of reproduction. So this is why we copy what our parents do, because it worked. They are genetically successful entities, because you exist. So if your father is violent, then you are programmed towards violence because you are programmed to reproduce your genetics, and everything else goes by the wayside. Everything else is less important than reproducing your genetics, because without reproducing your genetics, there's no possibility of anything else, right? I mean, if you come up with some wonderful grand theory of the free market or or, or free will or peaceful parenting, the non-aggression principle, universally preferable behavior, you come up with some wonderful thing, but your genetics don't get passed along, well, you still have meme imprints, and there's stuff that you can do that's kind of really behind the scenes, whether you live or die, through that. But most people aren't out there creating big, powerful, new ethical theories or theological interpretations. They're not Martin Luther. They're not uh, John Calvin. They're not uh, any any of these people, the founders of Anabaptism or the, anything like that. So for most people, you've got to copy what your parents do and you're programmed to do that almost against your will. And if your father is violent, then in your tribe, women like violent guys. That I mean, I'm not, this is not a moral judgment. This is just the reality of the way that Things work in the real world, and how things work from an evolutionary uh, standpoint, right? So, if your father is, you know, gentle and and kind, and then it's like, okay, well, that's what women like, so that's what I should become. And of course, you will inherit a significant proportion of your parents' personality traits, right? There's a uh, every now and then this kind of floats to the surface, where I said uh, we we inherit a, that there's we inherit a good deal of our personalities from our parents. And then somebody always retweets that, you know, both my parents suffered from mental illness. And it's like, ha ha. but mental illness is different, right? It's like saying you, uh, it's you inherit height, you don't inherit scars, right? If your mother gets stabbed, you don't inherit the scar. So mental illness is not a personality trait. It's usually the result of something cracking under extreme pressure and abuse. So, I know I said I was going to be short, but this is a big it's a big question. It's a very essential question. I really respect you uh, for, for raising this, Stan. So the first thing to understand is you are programmed to normalize how you were treated. And if your mother neglected you, then you have to learn to love neglectful women because you're programmed to believe that that's kind of all there is around is neglectful women your father chose a mother who neglected you or your father chose a wife who had you and she neglected you and so you're programmed to do what your father did which is to choose a woman who is emotionally distant emotionally unavailable depressed anxious self-contained walled off full-on roger Waters style who knows right but that's what you program programmed to say well that's female nature and that's what i better get bloody well get used to or there's no reproduction for me so you have to like velcro peeling stuff off or like i go i go walking in the woods i just released a uh, video called there is no such thing as objective value which is available on Subscribestar star uh for my uh for my uh, supporters i really really appreciate that i've got like a hundred posts out there on Subscribestar, star and a lot of those are videos just for those guys cuz i mean it's i incredibly valuable and and absolutely necessary for this so So you have to denormalize it. If you want a different path, you have to get off the train tracks of genetics and history and reproduction and what I call Simon the Boxer, right? So Simon the Boxer is an analogy from my book, Real-Time Relationships, The Logic of Love, which is available for free at freedomain.com. And Simon the Boxer goes something very briefly like this. Why does someone become a boxer? Because he was beaten as a child. Now, he could not control whether he was beaten, but he could control his response as in, screw you, you can't hurt me, or I'm going to take it, or I'm going to tough it out. So being beaten, he can't control that, but he can control his response to being beaten. The only sense of control he has over his life is his response to being beaten. So when he becomes an adult, not being beaten causes him great anxiety because he feels like he's out of control. I know it's a little counterintuitive, but you understand sort of the logic. And to denormalize that is very tough. What you have to do is go through the experience of how unpleasant it was, and that tears off the Velcro of repetition from... Your future gets you to jump the tracks. So you have to... Like, your parents owe you interaction. Your parents owe you interaction in the same way that they owe you food and shelter and health care. They owe you interaction because you're born into the ABC, right? The accidental biological cage. I don't have to feed a guy in India, but if I lock some guy in my basement, I really have to feed him because I've cut off his other sources of food, right? I've locked him in my basement. So your parents owed you interaction and if they did not give it to you they were woefully negligent and abusive as parents you can't have a child and then just abandon the child in your house and and just not interact with that child i mean you can do it obviously but it's immoral it's absolutely immoral absolutely wrong so you have to just go through how painful and how awful that was and that's going to give you a lot of anger towards your parents and that's why parents a lot of parents who are abusive don't like me talking about this stuff and then you sit down and talk about it with your parents all right How do I best warn family member without much self-knowledge about dating a single mother? How does he approach the topic with this woman? A groin punch? (laughs) That's that's a tough question. How do you get people to not do things that are wildly self-destructive, right? How do you do it? How do you do it? It's very tough. Now, the first thing you have to recognize is, and this is something I'm, oh, my God, I don't even want to get into it too deeply, but I'm wrestling with this like you wouldn't believe at the moment. Just do, do people ever bloody well listen? Do people ever bloody well listen to anything? I mean, is there any possibility that people will learn from reason, from evidence, from commitment from language or does everyone have to just keep grabbing the hot rocks in the fire until they finally stop grabbing the hot rocks in the fire does it matter if you say those rocks are hot you'll burn yourself here's a picture of a burnt hand here's my scar from when i got burned in the past is anyone out there able to stop that it's hard man i mean i know you guys do you listen to reason and i think that's wonderful but most people don't listen they just they have to learn by bitter hard ugly experience right so here's what I would say to somebody who as you say doesn't have a lot of self-knowledge but is is um, in the sticky web of the single mom so I would say this I would say look First of all, she might, be a, she might be a great single mother, right? I mean, there there is that possibility, right? She might have just made a terrible mistake. She's done therapy. She's learned. She's figured things out. So that it is within the realm of possibility that she's a great single mother. But of course, if this guy doesn't have much self-knowledge, then she probably wouldn't be interested in him if she had gone through that whole process of self-knowledge. I have more in common with a unicorn than with somebody who's not gone through the process of self-knowledge and externalizes and projects everything in the world, right? You project... You have to hammer in your projections, right? So if you hate the world, but you think the world hates you, you have to internalize and recognize that your hatred comes from within and, and deal with it that way, right? So I'm just, so i going to assume that she's not a great single mother, A, because you're asking, and B, because she's dating a guy without much self-knowledge. You know... <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't want you to laugh, but it's funny. So... When I was when I was 14, I had my first love. So when I was uh, about that age, I can't remember exactly. I think it was in grade seven. There was this girl who was, uh, you know, all of the, uh, you know, hold your nose, sneeze, and it hails your boobs and butts, Michelin Man caricature of female physical markers of fertility, let's say, uh, at that age. And I wanted to ask her to a school dance. Now, she did not have a quality personality at all, but she, she, she had some curves. Now, of course, I didn't know what to do with any of this. I was like 13 or 14, but I did want to ask her. Now, <laughs> my, my friends asked me. They'd heard somehow, I can't remember how, I think I talked about it with one friend, oh, I want to ask this girl out. And they were all like, hey, who do you want to ask out? Who do you want to ask out? And they kind of cornered me. And, and so I finally said, I want to ask out this girl. And there was this pause because it was very clear as to why I wanted to ask her out. And it was not based upon her deep knowledge of a day in the life of Ivan Denisevich. And so there was this kind of pause. And in, in the sort of idea that might support Scott Adams' simulation theory, this girl let out some braying, wounded donkey laughing, <laughs> you know, like a full-on Adele, three witches of Macbeth cackle. And, uh, you know, this sort of harsh laugh and so on. And, and it was like, and I was like, oh, man, you know, I saw myself the way that other people, uh, my friends around me saw me in that moment, which was, okay, so I'm just, I think the girl is, is hot and I want to ask her out because of that, but not because of any qualities of, of character, right? Now, that's really humiliating to go through, but man, did that ever save me. I didn't ask her out, and I did try and start focusing on qualities of character rather than qualities of curves and so on. So the question is, why Why is he dating the single mother? So there's a couple of reasons. First of all, did he come from a single mother household? Is he fulfilling the role of stepfather that he desperately wishes had been fulfilled by some quality guy in his childhood? Well, then talk to him about that. What was it like for you growing up without a father if he's son of a single mother? Is he programmed to be the ultimate white knight in other words has he absorbed all of culture's programming modern culture's programming to just be there for the woman and 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 help her out and and support her and and you know she made some mistakes but but that's no reason why she should be alone for her life and like is he has he absorbed all of that stuff in other words does he have this sort of white knight approach to ride in and save the uh, the woman uh, that is an act of profound disrespect towards her you, you, you can't, this is something that Dr. Nathaniel Brandon, the late Dr. Nathaniel Brandon said, and it really, really struck me when I was younger. He would have these group therapy sessions, and he would say that the essence of what he was trying to get to the people in the group, he would say, no one is coming to save you. Like in Shadowlands, you know, the Anthony Hopkins, he played C.S. Lewis, his mother, like, nobody's coming down the hall, nobody's coming to save him from his mother's early death. And then, of course, he had the repetition compulsion and he dated Deborah Winger, who seems to die of cancer in every other movie. But you really do have to focus on these repetitions. Is he just there to save her? Nathaniel Brandon was asked by one of his patients, he said, you, you say no one's coming, but you're here. And he said, yes, and I'm here to tell you that no one is coming. That's why I came, to tell you that no one is coming to save you. If he tries to save her, he does not respect her. Right? You can't ride in to save people that you fundamentally respect as adults, right? It's different if they're children, right? You, can, you just can't. That's important, right? That's very, very important. You cannot save people and respect them at the same time. And if you try that, it will not work out for you very well in the long run. So people will be happy being saved, you know, like, yeah, pay my bills and all that, but they won't be very happy in the long run because that lack of respect is something that is really catastrophic for people. really is catastrophic for people. So that is what I would say regarding all of that, that really do... Try and figure out: if He's got repetition compulsion. Is he programmed to save people, or is it just he wants to get laid? <laughs> I mean, like, I'm sorry. Let's just be, you know, is he is he walking around with uh, you know ball hanging grapefruit castanets to the point where he he's got to have some Borisovitch stretch on the subway just to be able to sit down? Uh, is is he just a a water truck that needs to be emptied <laughs> or something like that? Uh, in which case, uh, that's You know, if you follow your lust into sexual activity with a woman, then your heart will follow that. And then you will find yourself attached to that woman emotionally because of the sexual activity. And then it's going to be really, really hard to uh, figure out or to withdraw or anything like that. So, yeah, that is a big, big problem. All right. Nothing wrong with laying pipe. Yeah, it kind of is, though. Somebody has said, uh, do you get a chance to read the books you sent? I sent me for Xmas, uh, Christmas? I'd love to know what you think of them. I will. I've been a little bit busy uh, lately uh, dealing with, uh, uh, well, some variety, uh, a variety of stuff. All right. Let's see here. Let's go back and see what else I have missed. Let's see here. Can you cure hypergamy? Well, I suppose uh, you could try. Uh, So uh, hypergamy is women's desire to sort of marry up, that women are drawn to men with more resources. So that's hypergamy. First of all, I don't know that you really want to cure it, because it's kind of why we have a civilization. So you can cure hypergamy only at going against four billion years of evolution of women looking, or females looking for the fittest males to have babies with. And I don't know that you want to cure it. Um, but the, the best way to cure hypergamy is an old Grace Jones song. Uh, I'm not perfect, but I'm perfect for you. And that's sort of important, right? So you don't have to be the very apex predator alpha male guy on the planet to have a stable relationship with a woman. It didn't even work that well for Brad Pitt. But you do have to be the perfect person for your partner. And if she can't upgrade from you in other words you fit together really well uh, emotionally and and sexually and and philosophically and from a value standpoint and and view of life and sense of life standpoint then i would say you get stability when you can't upgrade from your partner so just work to be as great a partner as you can to your partner and that's i mean and hopefully people will take it seriously when They say, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health and so on, right? So here we go. Oh, how dark do we want to get? Shall we get dark? All right. Ryan says, why am I suffering from masturbation, addiction, slash guilt since three years old? Five years of therapy, counseling, in and out of church. I'm trying so hard, doing everything I can, barely hanging on. How do I find peace? I don't know exactly, of course, because this is very little information. But um, I would imagine that, um, let's just say self-play, is a form of um, self-soothing, a form of anxiety management. You know, like some people, when they're anxious, they will go and exercise, uh, which can have various good and bad effects. Some people, when they're anxious, will eat. Some people, while they're anxious, will just dive into video games. Some people, when they're anxious, will you know, there's lots of different ways that people can sort of self-soothe without dealing with the source of the anxiety, right? That's So my guess is that uh, this uh, anxiety is probably at the root of this, and you're trying to deal with your anxiety through self-play and uh, orgasm and maybe the, the, the tiredness or, or quote, relaxation that comes afterwards and so on. And the reason why it's re- repetitive is because you, you're not dealing with the source of the problem, right? You're not dealing with the source of the problem. So um, I, I'm somewhat prey to soft tissue damage with exercise, and it's been a bit of a curse uh, for for me for for many years. And... So what I have to do is let it lie fallow for a little bit, like if I hurt myself, you know, playing squash or something like that, and then I have to like dig in and just grind at the muscle and the tissue, and it's really quite painful, and that deals with the problem. Otherwise, it just twinges forever, right? So, and and sometimes it can be hard to find the right spot because it's some place that you wouldn't expect, kind of thing, right? And so for me, the, the sort of discomfort and tenderness that comes from a muscle hurt or a tendon hurt just lasts and lasts until <clears throat> such time as I find the root and kind of grind it out. And, and it's really quite an intense process, but uh, then it's all fine and it's better. So if you're in the situation where this compulsion is not dealing with the problem, then the problem is a, a level or five deeper than what you're dealing with at S. So um, I would I would definitely sit down and, and try and figure out three is kind of early, right? But it, did you have any, what are euphemistically called premature sexual experiences? Did you uh, uh, have someone touch you inappropriately as a child? Did you see uh, something that was shocking as a child? And uh, all of that, that can be uh, quite, uh, quite important and, and vivid and powerful. And, you know, like I was just thinking today about Freddie Mercury's compulsive sexuality, like his just hypersexuality. Uh, I think the band members were once, when they were going on their Wembley tour, he wanted a giant penis going into a giant mouth, like coming over the station. It's like, they're like, no, Freddie, we're not, we're not doing that, you, you rabid, our selected queen bot. And, uh, you know, he was, uh, he, he was sent away to boarding school when he was yo- a young boy, and he was asked if anything happened there, and he said, let's just say that there were headmasters who chased the boys around, and that's all I'm going to say about that. Now, you can theorize whatever you want out of that, but the way that I take that kind of statement is that uh, either the older boys or the headmaster or someone uh, molested him as a child, and uh, that probably had something to do with his hypersexualization. When he got older, where he was just sex-obsessed to the point where he continued highly risky, promiscuous gay sex behavior, even after he tested positive well, he tested negative for the AIDS virus, then he continued at a time when it was pretty much a death sentence. So um, it could have been premature sexual experiences. Um, and it, it may not have been you know, straight-on molestation or, or rape. It could have been you know, some older boy or maybe girl uh, showing you uh, inappropriate material when you're young. And uh, I would also imagine that it's kind of a secret that you've kept uh, if something like that did happen. The, the, the great curse of uh, isolation is secrecy, right? Isolation, loneliness to me, uh, is just a, um, another way of saying I, I, have, I have too many secrets to have a conversation with anyone. I'm, too, I'm silenced by secrets. Uh, secrets are the Praetorian guard that keep me from people. And, you know, find people that you don't have to keep secrets from. That's kind of important in life. Find people you don't have to keep secrets from. And um, recognize that your behavior is not uh, dealing with the essence of the problem but why are you afraid of debating tfm stephanie (laughs) i don't know you guys are not you guys all but this kind of stuff is so uh silly predictable uh so 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 foolishly oh were you afraid of running away from debate and so on turd flinging monkey i don't know i haven't listened to him in years uh, so i don't really know yeah we're all concerned with qualities of character at 14 yeah well you know but you need a reminder of these kinds of things right Question, would you ever consider making a video critiquing yourself from 2005, like proof, disproof, and deities? That's an interesting question. Um, I think it would be tough for me to find logical problems with the work that I did in the past, although I'm certainly happy to hear of them. And um, as uh, somebody who has a positive relationship with Christianity and Christians at the moment, I don't really feel like going back and combing over the atheism at the moment. So not hugely. Love you, Stefan. Even if you don't have breasts, well, <laughs> thank you. I'm I'm working on not having. Um, <laughs> I'm working on not having the uh, the breasts. So I'll appreciate that. What is it? on uh, Seinfeld, they had a, a bra for older men with man boobs, and they called it either the bro or the man's ear. I think it was vodka knackers. Uh What is the difference between communism and socialism? Uh, Well, it's like the difference between half-killed and fully-killed, right? So uh, socialism is when there's some fairly nominal private ownership. There may, in fact, even be corporations, and socialism and fascism have a lot in common that way. But socialism is when you are allowed to choose your own occupation, you are allowed to choose your own education, and the products of your work, the, the fruits of your labor, you're allowed to keep some of them but a good proportion of those products of your labor is taxed away and redistributed by the government right so it's sort of free range as opposed to fully enslaved right you you're still enslaved and in fact you're you know you're enslaved more than the actual slaves were from a purely economic sense because slaves got to keep 60 70% uh, percent or 80% in places of their productivity. Now, they weren't free to leave, so I'm I'm not talking about labor mobility, but just in terms of taxation, they were taxed at, you know, 10, 20, 30%. And so if you're taxed higher than that, you're taxed more than a slave, but you're a free-range slave, right? Free-range tax livestock, as I've characterized it, and you should watch the story of your enslavement. You need to be logged into watch it on youtube and be over 18 because apparently it's just too too traumatic for children to see that kind of stuff but you can find it on BitChute and other places uh, more easily but um so yeah you're free range in in socialism now in communism uh everything everything is controlled you are told where to go to school you were told what to study uh, you were told where to work and um you basically keep just a little bit of a pittance for personal uh, use items and so on right They, they socialize the means of production not uh, the toothbrush, your toothbrush, and so on. So, um, Socialism is sort of free-range, tax livestock, and, and communism is, is basically full-on economic slavery. Sometimes a woman's character is reflected in her effort to stay attractive. Now, yeah, that, I mean, that's interesting, right? So with regards to attractiveness, you really do want to have the Aristotelian mean, right? So you don't want to be super unattractive, obviously, right? That would be, that would be pretty bad. And you don't want to uh, focus on simply being attractive for the sake of being attractive, right? Because that's also not great, right? And finding something in the middle is important. I mean, <laughs> it, it's like this, right? So, uh, then, and the naked Ladies sung about this in a pretty funny song called Grade 9. This is me in grade 9, baby. And they, I've got uh, an Adidas bag and a humongous binder, right? Because that was the case when we were kids. You just get these giant, massive binders and Adidas bag, where we characterized the acronym as "All Day I Dream About Sex." That was our characterization of that acronym. But I had a friend of mine. Uh, he he played obviously he played Dungeons and Dragons with us. But I have a friend a friend of mine, and he would double bag shopping bags and use that to carry his books and his pens around, right? And Adidas bags were kind of a status symbol because they were expensive. And it's funny because in the school, the high school that I went to, junior high school, there was a lot of variety, a lot of multi-classes, right? There wasn't just a poor school. It wasn't a rich school. There was a lot of mixing uh, of the classes. And so one of the ways that you would know if somebody came from a more wealthy family is that they would have a really nice Adidas bag, right, And, and all of that. So my friend... You know, when the Adidas bags were like 20 bucks, which was a, a staggering sum back in the day. I mean, when I had a, a paper route, I was, yeah, it was hard to, it was hard to make money, uh, at least hard to make uh, a decent money. And I, I wasn't going to go and spend it on an Adidas bag. My friend said, but if you double bag, well, the, the grocery bags are free, because they were back then, right? So the grocery bags are free. So, you know, I'm saving myself 20 bucks. And I'm like, yeah, you are. And you're also saving yourself the cost of dating. Uh, of getting married, of, you know, you're setting yourself the cost of a wedding. So if he was too far on the, let's be just practical. A certain amount of conspicuous consumption is not the end of the world when it comes to mating. It's like if you had a choice as a peacock and you said, oh, I don't want to drag this stupid, great, heavy tail around me. That's terrible. <laughs> How awful is that? Well, uh, that would be... Um, that would be bad, right? I mean, because if you say, well, I don't drag the stupid heavy peacock tail around, then the female peacocks aren't going to find you attractive. And you've saved some muscle energy, but you've lost your entire genetic lineage. So it's kind of tough. You do want to be um, appropriate. You do want to be groomed. You do, you know, all of that. But at the same time, if you go too far on focusing on appearance, then that's not good either. Because you're showing a pretty rabid insecurity. I remember working up north doing, um, we would go out into the bush and we would get soil samples and then we would use a whole process. I don't have to bore everyone with it, but we'd do a whole process to try and figure out where the gold was because gold is very heavy and we'll sink to the bottom of sediment and silt. And I was working with this woman and every now and then we'd just get bush crazy and we would uh, just, go into town some places you could get into town some places you couldn't some places i was like a seaplane or a, an ice plane ride away from town and other places we could we had trucks and we could go into town and i remember being a little bush crazy and i would go um this is in the town of Nikina, way north in ontario every now and then we just go in and grab a meal and have a couple of drinks and uh, maybe sing some karaoke and 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 dance, I love, still do love, loved to dance, man. I would go to to discos from the age of like fifteen or sixteen onwards, because high forehead and and uh, British accent, I just talked my way in, and, and I would go to these discos and I dance for hours and hours, and I just love, love shaking a tail feather, love the boogie, right? Anyway, so I was working with this woman, and I'm like, ah, oh, you know, her name. Let's let's go into town, you know, and she's like, hmm. I need about an hour to do my hair and put my face on. And I'm like we're not going to a photo shoot, you know, we're not going to to try and get modeling gigs. We let's just and but she couldn't she couldn't go into town without, you know, everything being just so. Now, I think that's a little bit too far on the other uh, side of things. So um uh, I think an Aristotelian mean is probably important there. All right. Great questions. Great questions. Let's see here. What else do we have? What do I think of Canada's political future? seems highly unlikely that the size of the state can ever be reduced, especially with mass migration. Well, if um, if Canada continues with... Canada has the highest rates of immigration per capita, I think in the world, certainly in the Western world. So if it continues, then the tax base of the existing population will simply be broken. And that's how... You know, people say, oh, whites are going to go down to like 20% of the population by 2060 or 2070. It's like, nope, because uh, the, the, the government will simply run out of money. I mean, seriously run out of money. It does happen. I mean, no, it doesn't seem like it happens because we've got a lot of productivity, a lot of fiat currency, a lot of central banking. And that's going to be a big mess. And I think a lot of people will just end up going back home. So, all right. Uh, Stefan, you've discussed this before. Where can one read about why some abused children develop a personality as the funny friend in their peer group? (laughs) You know what? I don't think I have discussed that before. But it's a very interesting question. And I have these little markers. You know, if you sort of sit and think about your life, I'm sure you do as well. You have these little markers. Now, these markers are fascinating because they're things that you remember and you have no idea why. Things that you so when I was a kid, I grew up in England, of course, where there was like there was no TV, basically. There were three channels, BBC One, which had news all the time, BBC Two, which had like really sweaty mastermind QA shows, and then ITV, which would occasionally show a Bond movie, which would shut down the entire country because everybody would stay home to watch the Bond movie. And there was like, I don't know, you you get like an hour of cartoons on Saturday morning or whatever. So I really didn't grow up watching any TV. And of course, the British weather is more conducive to going outside a lot of times than the Canadian weather is. So, spend a lot of time outside, a lot of time going out, making up games with friends, and all of that. So, had a lot of glorious anarchy as a child, and no central planning, and making up your own rules and enforcing them horizontally and socially through ostracism, ostracism rather than vertically. So, when I um, when I when I came to Canada. Things you know were a little bit a little bit different. Still a lot of time outside, but the, the television was much more attractive and appealing, right? And so I have I, I would watch. Um, uh, Mash was a show that I would watch as a kid and and quite enjoyed it, and still have a, a real soft spot for Alan older He showed up in some movie with lowell from wings or no series lowell from wings and sarah jessica parker he showed showed up and i mean he's supposed to be a seriously nice guy i've heard really nice things about him also adam sandler but um it's just a very very sort of warm and i know he's i think he's a bit of a lefty nut job but as far as acting goes and sort of sense of spirit is a very gentle and sort of warm personality anyway so i was watching mash and of course i i don't know i didn't watch all the episodes It went on for many seasons but i would catch one when i could and enjoy it and I remember I remember reading later they had big battles about the laugh track, whether there should be a laugh track or shouldn't be. And, of course, there shouldn't have been a laugh track. The idea that everyone's sitting around in a war laughing at things is just kind of weird. But with MASH, there was Hawkeye and then B.J. Bunnycut, I think was his name. And at one point, they were pouring concrete into a a, a big gun, a howitzer, I think it was, or even bigger than that. And they were making these jokes, and because guns are measured by caliber, right? It's the size of the, the tube. I don't get all technical. I don't know size of the tube that the shell goes out. It's measured in caliber, and I think it was Hawkeye Pierce, Alan Alda's character, who said, "This is humor of the highest caliber." Now, why I would remember that one joke, for many years, and it would be would pop into my head once or twice a year. Something would remind me, or whatever, and I'd sit there and think, "Okay, why?" Why would I remember this? I don't remember much of MASH, other than that final episode, which was really chilling. But I don't remember much of MASH. But I, do, I do, always remember that joke. Why? Why, brain, are you hanging on to these <laughs> crazy little bits of detritus and flotsam? Why? Why? Why are you doing it? It makes no sense. <laughs> but you do. And I realized, of course, many years later, why I hung on to it. Humor of the highest caliber. What does that mean? Well, it means that a lot of humor is motivated by anger. It's like there's a pretty bad Tom Hanks film called, I think it's called Stand Up. He plays a comedian. And he says, I'm a comedian because I think nothing is funny. Now, that's just one of these, and what what is it sound of one hand clapping, pseudo-intellectual reversals. But nonetheless, there's still a tiny, tiny little bit of truth in it. The friends I knew who were funny, an old man alive, the people I grew up with, you know how um, there are some people who talk about, you know, Malcolm Gladwell is one of these, like, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, but we just happen to have a super smart group. And it's true of uh, my group growing up. My group growing up, super smart people, really smart people, and... We really challenged each other. We debated like crazy. The Dungeons & Dragons was really imaginative and a lot of problem-solving and a lot of puzzles and a lot of interesting moral dilemmas. I've said this before, but I remember when we played Dungeons & Dragons, the ranger and the chaotic neutral thief, the chaotic good ranger and the chaotic neutral thief were always at war with each other. And at one point, the ranger, I was dungeon master, and the ranger decided to take out a hit, on the chaotic neutral thief and as the dungeon master if you if you break alignment like if you're chaotic good which means you're virtuous but you don't really care for rules then if you break alignment then you lose your powers because you have to be good to be a ranger like I i played a paladin who was lawful good and i had to be lawful good if i became lawful neutral or neutral good or lawful evil or something like that then i would lose my paladin powers because It was the god who gave me the powers and I had to worship the god and the god required me to be a certain moral alignment. And so the ranger, in taking out a hit, paying someone, an assassin, to go and kill the chaotic neutral thief, I deemed that to be shifting him from chaotic good to chaotic neutral, and that meant he lost his range of powers. Now, this was in the middle of a campaign against giants, and rangers were super powerful, like double damage against giants and so on. So he got really mad, and he challenged me, and he said, this is not the case. And my God, did we debate that. Like, seriously, this is, I don't, I don't get all these ethical theories out of nowhere. This is like when I was 14 years old, and I was running an entire campaign in Dungeons and Dragons, and I had this very strong-willed guy, he's now a professor, a very strong-willed guy, challenging me on all of this. And we had these ferocious moral debates. Can you possibly hire an assassin and still, and still be good if it's not an evil character you're assassinating? And I, my answer back then and now was no. And I remember we trooped. We couldn't, we couldn't come a resolution. I would not let him continue with his range of powers. And we didn't have like a warp back in time. I hope this stuff is interesting to you guys. I mean, this is the furnace of, like, I don't come out of nowhere with all of this stuff. Like, this is when I was 14 years old. I was having the most ferocious and essential moral debates with a very smart group of people I grew up with. They all became professionals. Uh, most of them became, well, one became a, a, a pretty pretty good writer. Uh, a, a bunch of other ones became um, uh, professors. But that seemed to be where a lot of people uh, went. So one became an entrepreneur. Uh, I'm doing my thing for whatever you think of that, better or for worse or whatever, Right. And so, but the friends that I grew up with, there was a, a half of them were like jaw-droppingly hilarious. Like so fast and and so nihilistic in their humor. And there was an association with the degree of humor that they had and the nihilism that they had as well. Because humor... This juxtaposition and this unraveling, humor is a hammer. It doesn't build anything. It just tears things down. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, the, 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 the sort of acidic Nietzschean dissolution of unsteady structures in society is a time-honored and positive thing for thinkers to do. I have no problem. You, but tear things down. But for God's sakes, build them back up as well. If all you're doing is tearing things down, uh, you are a destroyer. And that's my sort of issue with atheism, that it tore down Christianity, but it did not build. A support or get excited about universally preferable behavior because it is a hammer. Philosophize with a hammer. That was uh, Nietzsche's motto, or at least one of his mottos. So to go back to MASH, Mobile Army Surgical Hospital, I think it was, this is humor of the highest caliber. It's a gun. It's a gun. Humor can be a gun. So if you've been abused as a child, And you can make people laugh. That gives you a sense of relief that you have value. And now, like Robin Williams, I did this whole, I think it's one of my biggest presentations back when you could see my presentations. I did The Truth About Robin Williams. It's the me plus. So to have value to people, if you have to be funny, if you have to make them laugh, then that's an act of self-humiliation. It's an act of self Because what value do you have if you're not making people laugh? What value do you have if you're not doing your tricks? Again, go back to Freddie Mercury. When he was living in Switzerland, the authorities kicked in his door because he hadn't paid his taxes in I don't know how long. <clears throat> and he said, oh, darlings, why don't I just sing you a song? Great voice, great performer. So his value was, I, I can sing songs and and very and write songs of course as well and all that right but who are you without your tricks who are you without your ability to make people laugh who are you without your great looks who are you without your eloquence who are you without your education who are you without your money your status your job the bare forked animal the lollipop human being that every child draws Lollipop head, stick body, who are you without your trappings and your accoutrements? Who are you without your markers? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Who are you when you can't perform for people? Well, Robin Williams, I don't think, was much when he couldn't perform for people. I, Michael Hutchins wasn't enough. Uh, Freddie Mercury wasn't much when he couldn't perform for people. You're always fighting this depression and, and then to, to stay away from the void of of who you aren't deep down, which is somebody who has value outside of performing, outside of pleasing people or intimidating them. The bully also finds his identity in threatening people. Who are you? without your tricks. I remember when I was in theater school, one of the few times I burst into tears and literally could never, could not control it at all. I was sitting across, I still remember the actor I was sitting across from, still remember this woman from New York who was our acting teacher who was very harsh. And we all wanted to go and act, you know, be big and be actress. And I was sitting across from another actor and we just, we were given scripts and we looked down and we read the line we, we we got the line, we looked up, we looked into the eyes of the other actor, and we said the line. No acting, no performance, no just simply saying, and it was, half of us just burst into tears. Who are you without your show? We're all a traveling showman, right? We're all a traveling showwomen, right? We all got our cleavage, and we all got our Armani suits, and we all got our souped-up cars, and we all got our expensive watches, and we've all got our wit, and we've all got our eloquence, and we've all got our knowledge, and we show it off. We display. It's a peacock tail, right? Who is the peacock without the peacock tail? Well, because we are supposed to be on the journey towards self-actualization and not the blind photocopy of genetic history, you got to figure out who you are without your tricks at some point. Who are you if you are not singing to people? Who are you if you're not making money for people? Who are you when you cannot distract people with your shine and your toys? It's a very essential question. It's a very underrated question. Because if you can seat yourself firmly in your identity and know that you have value because of the good you bring to the world and the listening that you will perform and if you're willing to be egoless and invisible in the service of good, (laughs) <laughs> well, then you will always know what it is to be both loved and hated. So, yeah, I think humor is one of those things. How can we trust logic, given that it is a product of our brains? Well, it's not a product of our brains. Your dreams at night, they are a product of your brain. But, uh, no, you, um, you trust logic because logic is the mirror of the objective behavior of matter and energy in the universe. Ah, let's see here. Please cover more of the Richmond-Virginia Second Amendment rally on January the 20th. All right. (laughs) Uh, I talked about Tulsi Gabbard in the last show. Uh, You say that self-promotion is key to success on this platform. I have a small YouTube 750 subs channel that I started working on almost a year ago. Would you be on my show? Sometime. time. Uh, send me an email. I would. Uh, I mean, it's funny because I get some very interesting invitations. I got an invitation from a, a group of women who were childless by choice to come on their show. But man, it was a pretty tiny show. So it's, uh, it's hard. Hard to find that. <laughs> Hi, Stefan. What is wrong with fruit picking from Queensland? That's because I occasionally will talk about going to pick grapes in Queensland, which I uh, read somewhere else and it always stuck, stuck with me. Let's see here. This guy can effing nail it. I think that's probably <laughs> it's probably me. Let's see here. What have we got here? Some very confusing. You know, people who are just upset with me, it's very, very confusing. They're just like whirling around with negative stuff. Let's see here. ah what do we got yeah check out your random memories the stuff that sticks out in your memory is always something that's like a placeholder that that's got an important life lesson there but you should really unpack and uh you know, not, it's not, not a lot of times I don't have much to do intellectually, but every now and then, you know, sitting in a plane waiting for something or whatever, and I'll just sit there and say, okay, what's the first memory that pops into my mind from when I was a teenager or 20s or, or whatever, right? Say, oh, it's this. Okay, why is that the first one that pops into my mind? And usually it's because there's an unresolved lesson in there that uh, is well worth uh, figuring out and can be extraordinarily illuminative. Rebel Media has a video and interviews with Tommy Robinson of his award and speech. Check it out before it's taken down. Yes, uh, that's definitely good. Do I need to donate to ask? No. Bill Burr is hilarious. Yeah, I don't think he likes me that much, but he can be quite funny. Uh, IQ doesn't make you happy. It makes you isolated. No, IQ is trying to get you to other people who are smart, too, so... Could you compile a book list on your website of books you recommend? Thanks. You know, I had that on a website years ago, a free domain website from way back in the day. I probably can't dig it up too much, but uh, I will certainly try my uh, my best. All right. I am the walrus. <laughs> well, it's funny, you know, that, that that song has been poking around in my head <laughs> because uh, I have become known as the Eggman on uh, Facebook and, and Twitter and other places, right? I am... Uh, I'm the egg man because I keep reminding women that their eggs are going to fade. And if you want to have kids, like a good friend of mine, uh, good friends of mine just had their third child, which they worked very hard to get. And uh, it's a beautiful family. And uh, I don't want people to miss out if they can, right? All right. What advice would you give to millennials in Canada on buying a house? 20% down on the average home is almost $100,000. Well, um, where do you invest? I'm not an investment guy. This is not any kind of investment advice. But, um, you know, housing versus uh, electronic currency is something that's probably (laughs) something that you won't want to balance. Uh, Given that an anarchist society requires high social trust and the corrosive effects of diversity on trust, would an anarchy have to be an ethnostate? Well, see, that's a very interesting question. But of course, the whole point of anarchy is that there is no central agency with which to enforce any kind of democratic absolutism. Will people drift towards other people that they can get along with? I think it's a fascinating question. I would love to know how well diversity would work out, like a multiracial society, if everybody wasn't screaming racism at everyone, well, mostly whites, all the time. Like, I'd be really, really fascinated. We won't really get to know, I think, this round of History and society. I don't think we'll really get to know how well a society works without everyone weaponizing racism all the time. But I think that uh, people could get on a lot better without screaming racism all the time. And so, how much people will self segregate in a free society? I don't know it doesn't matter. I don't fundamentally care uh, if people want to self-segregate like they do in churches in America. There's no diversity mandates in churches. And I think 90% of the churches in America are like 90% either black or white or perhaps some other ethnicity. So maybe people will self-segregate. How much are they self-segregating because of the fears of being called racist? Should something go wrong? It's certainly an influence and certainly an effect. And I mean, I've had tons of people of other races on my show. It doesn't really care about the other races, whether they are or aren't, and have great conversations with them, like really, really fun conversations with people of other races, just as I do with people of my own race and so on. So, you know, there's no there's no segregation on this show as far as that goes. And people say, I mean, sometimes I don't even know. I find out during the conversation or sometimes people will email me ahead of time because it's part of what they want to talk about or there's a cultural influence or a... Uh, racially cultural influence in what it is that they want to talk about. It's good to know ahead of time but um, there won't be any kind of um, ethnostate in a a free society. Will people self-segregate? Maybe. There will be some of that for sure but I think that people will segregate by values rather than by race. At least that would be my my particular hope. And so, let's see here. Ah... any thoughts on the Kevin Spacey stuff? Um, do you hear that inhale and that exhale? Oh, look at that. I got my sneeze shield up finally. But do um, you know that inhale and that exhale? I kind of attached to that, so I'm not going to talk too much about the Kevin Spacey stuff. Has, winning, has reading Win Bigley affected your views on objective truth? For instance, the idea that facts matter to outcomes but not to persuasion and how humans evolve for fitness rather than reality. Yeah, I mean, Scott Adams has some great stuff with all of that, and uh, it's worth reading. I don't... I mean, listen, I'm tempted by the simulation thing. I'm really, really tempted by the simulation thing because I can look back down through the... Get ready to ramble! I can look back down through the tunnel of time, my friends, and I can really, really see the seductiveness of the simulation hypothesis. When I was younger, there was a woman that... I was interested in, and she was married, but her marriage was shaky. And again, this is not the most moral incarnation of myself. And it was many, 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 many years ago. And every time I, and I, it wasn't like I was going to date her or anything like that. But I've always had a, generally had a policy of, of honesty, of course. But every time we were alone, there'd be some particular interruption. And that was very, very uncommon. And then once she asked me if there was someone, i was attracted to that i hadn't talked about and i said well yeah you and then her husband called at that very moment and he'd not called the entire time so i can see that kind of simulation where it's just like you feel like all these pieces are moving to get you this or and i think about everything that kind of coincidentally led together to me being able to do what it is that i'm doing could i do what i'm doing if I hadn't been a software guy. If I hadn't co-founded a company, been an entrepreneur, probably not. What if I hadn't gone to theater school? What if I hadn't taken voice training so that I can use my voice in a flexible and expressive manner? What if um, uh, uh, I didn't have my accent? I mean, this a funny little pseudo-intellectual accent or whatever it is, right? What if, what if, what if, what if? Like everything that kind of came together for me to be able to do what it is that i'm doing what if i hadn't just hadn't happened to have grown up around these super smart people and and had all of these debates and arguments on on abortion and and the death penalty and whether you can hire someone to assassinate and still be (laughs) still be good i don't know everything that came together what if what if i hadn't done all those improv classes in theater school and other places so that i learned to think more nimbly on my feet what if i just hadn't been interested in joining the debating society so that I learned how to debate in a productive way. So you can sort of look back and say, you know, everything was just like a stepping stone to this and it is managed environment and it is a simulation and so on, but that's not, you know, what what if I hadn't spent time in Africa? What if I hadn't, you know, even though I was a poor kid, what if I hadn't gone to boarding school and learned some respect for male authority and had some exposure to the quote patriarchy? I don't know. At the time I didn't like it, but Staying home with my mom probably would have been a lot worse. So the objective reality, can't argue against it. The idea that things are a simulation, well, I mean, things are a simulation. I get this. Like, and I talk about this in my book, Essential Philosophy. You can get that at essentialphilosophy.com. It's available for free on YouTube. But if you think about it, we everything that occurs, like you're listening to me, you're seeing me, That's all a simulation in your head because you're not touching me, so to speak. And even the touch would then be – all of reality is recreated in our mind. And the degree to which we uh, have additional layers of processing on that reality is really important. Like my mother, when she was – well, she still is, right – uh, worried that uh, people were, were, were trying to get her, well, there'd be graffiti on a building over, and she'd think that was a message to her. Some car would backfire. She'd dive to the ground thinking people were shooting at her. Now, there was graffiti. There was a car backfiring. But it went through an additional layer of paranoia in my mind, in the mind of my mother. And so when you see that kind of stuff, you say, okay, well, there's reality, and it is giving her objective data, but then she's interpreting it in a way that is much more subjective. And that is... Where you can, and when you've been around people who have mental illness or or distorted thinking, is probably a better way of of, of putting it. When you are around people like that, you realize that the interpretive element of our consciousness is our greatest friend or our greatest enemy, because it's the only thing that can add a moral dimension to what we see, but it can also take us to very distorted and strange places in our minds. So. Uh, That is uh, really important. So, yeah, I I think working on the simulation hypothesis in that we recreate the most essential aspects of our reality, our value judgments, which don't exist in reality but exist in our our minds. But I don't go to the whole Cartesian demon in a tank simulation stuff. I lost the plot. Stefan rambling for 20 minutes. (laughs) Yeah, it happens, man. It happens. Me, egoless, laugh out loud. Well, that's so funny, you know, because it's people, ah, what if you hadn't lost all your hair? Also very important because I would have been a, a, may have stayed a shallow player for longer. Who knows, right? I'm not proud of all of that stuff. I I did some, um, I think I did some negative things when I was younger to women's capacity to pair bond. uh, And I just, I didn't know any better. I wasn't trained any better. So it's funny, you know, people, people think that, that, I'm motivated by, I have a big ego or or I'm vain or I'm somehow looking for attention or, you know, and you see this, oh, he's just a troll. He's just trying to provoke people and he loves the attention and so on. It's like, it's actually a, a very significant and deep misperception, misinterpretation of what I'm doing. If I had this ego... Which wanted positive reinforcement from the world, I wouldn't tackle the most challenging topics known to man, like I, I, knowing that the, you know there'd be some significant blowback and so on, like I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. I, I didn't come up with a theory of ethics because I, I felt I had a complete grasp on ethics. Like I was in my late thirties when I sat down to write universally preferable behavior, and I did that because I didn't know what was good. I didn't know what was good, and I wasn't willing to just say, well, everything's subjective, because that never lasts, right? That's just an excuse. Like People say everything's subjective, but racism is evil. It's like, well, you can't have it both ways, right? So there is a a huge amount of egolessness in what it is that I'm doing. Like when I'm talking to someone in a a call-in show, I'm listening, and sometimes I will listen for half an hour. I'll listen for an hour before I'll give any feedback. That's me just trying to absorb where the person is coming from, and this is not an ego exercise this is an exercise in egolessness listening if that makes sense so i don't sit here and say oh you should watch me or listen to me you're here and you watch me and you listen to me because of the value that philosophy can provide to you right that that's Important. The value that philosophy can provide to you is why you're listening, why you watch, why I hope that you will support the show at freedomain.com forward slash donate. So it's not about my ego. Would you just, I mean, if I was just sitting here grooming myself in a mirror, would you tune in to watch? Of course not. (laughs) Of course not. Because if men find out we can shapeshift, they're going to tell the church. So you wouldn't do that. Um, you watch for the value that I can provide to you, not to serve or feed my ego. And just think, if I was vain, I mean, look at the stuff that is said about me in certain dank corners of the internet. I mean, that's not a vanity-serving exercise. You have to be egoless in order to be able to survive that level of hatred and criticism, right? You, you have to be without ego, because otherwise your ego is something that is used to wound you. Your vanity is something that is used to, to wound you. Because if I'm mixing myself into the conversation, when people hate what it is that I'm saying, I would then think that they hate me. But it's not the case, right? So people get mad at me, and then I point them to the data, I point them to the arguments, because the people who hate me have to understand that they don't hate me, they hate the truth, they hate the reason, they hate the evidence, right? Now, again, maybe I've made an error, in which case they can you know inform me and, and I can correct, as I've done a number of times on the show. But... No, the the only way that you can survive that level of hatred and animosity is to recognize that you are the clear glass through which they see a view of the truth. And if they hate the view and smash the glass, then they're woefully confused about the source of their anger. I mean, I'm just the glass through which you see the data, the reason, the evidence. It's an ego-less position to be in. Because if I invest my ego into what it is that I'm doing, First of all, you'll be much less interested because I'm here to provide value to you. I'm not here to have you look at me and say, ooh, whatever, right? Or "Ah, whatever, right? I'm there to provide value to you. I'm here to provide value to you. And that's why I ask for value in return. And this is the whole donation thing, which, you know, it's it's a, it's a reciprocal. It's fair, right? It's it's a reasonable exchange of, of value. But I have to prove value before I'm going to ask you to return value, which is why I put just about everything out for free and so on, right? So... No, the idea that there's some ego thing going on for me here is just is wrong. I mean, it, 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 uh, my show, if I was here to be liked only, I would be, <laughs> well, I was getting a couple of names popped into my head, which I won't mention here, but I wouldn't be myself. I'm not here to be liked. I'm not here to be loved. I'm not here to be hated. I'm here to be a delivery mechanism for philosophy, for arguments, for reason, for evidence, for perspectives. That's what I'm here for. So you don't care about me. You care about the value that I provide. Listen, my family cares about me, my friends care about me, the people who love me care about me. But you care about the value that I can provide to you, and that's exactly as it should be. I don't want to be a charity case as far as that goes. I do want it to be a reasonable exchange of value because that's what keeps me going. Like why I sit down and do a live stream today, well, I wanted to test some stuff out because my live stream... On Thursday, the, um, the Donald.win was problematic, so I wanted to figure some stuff out here. But I'm here to try and provide some value to you. And I'm here because every time I do have a conversation about philosophy with the world, I both teach something and I learn something about myself, about philosophy. It's a wonderfully reciprocal way of mutual education so all right Uh, and i haven't lost all my hair because it's funny you know it's these technical little stupid things that bother me people say you're balding it's like nope that process is pretty complete (laughs) it's pretty complete have you watched a marriage story on netflix if so what are your thoughts as well as your thoughts on marriage in modern day society i want kids but i'm frightened by the traps of modern day marriage Ah, oh, yeah, so who's in that? Um, the guy from Girls and Ky- the Kylo Ren guy, uh, who used to be a Marine, who was creepy as hell in Girls, like a complete sociopath in, in this Lena Dunham show, Girls. And, oh gosh, oh, I was Scarlett Johansson, right? So they play uh, a married a married couple. Now, What, to me, is the most astounding part of that movie is, first of all, it actually gives... Oh, is that the one? No, that's the one with Alan Alda. I think that's the one with Alan Alda. Okay, sorry, I got that earlier part wrong. But the most astounding thing about that is, first of all, that it shows just how destructive the divorce process is on families and on children. That's really quite powerful. But the second thing is there's a really ferocious scene... Adam Driver, is that his name? Adam Driver. And Scarlett Johansson. There's a scene where they finally just let rip on each other, and they are just brutal with each other. It is There's murderous language where you're trying to just rake and destroy and, and psychically and soulfully wound someone to the point where they'll never be able to put themselves back together again. And that twisted-lip, venomous, bottomless, demonic hatred that they have for each other is a really is a very very powerful scene and and horrifying to to watch that these two people who at one point loved each other and uh, had a child together they are just attempting to destroy each other through language it's a scene of mutually assured destruction or really mutual murder of each other and that is it's terrifying to think that that could happen i mean I don't raise my voice in my family. I've never said a mean word to anyone. I mean, I can occasionally be a little bit grumpy, particularly if I haven't slept, but I'm pretty aware of that, and I will cocoon a little and, until I'm sort of back on my feet, and that's pretty rare, but it is, it is terrifying. You have to find someone who you can't imagine hurting, and you have to be vulnerable. See, vulnerability is a great strength, Because when you're vulnerable, you find out how people handle power in relationships, right? So if you are upset about something and you're vulnerable and you're hurt and and you communicate that to someone you're dating, then you're saying, I'm in a down state. I'm a little bit in a broken state. And how do you handle that when you are in a more stable state than I am or a happier state than I am? Are you annoyed? Are you frustrated? Are you irritated by the fact that I'm not doing super great or something like that or I'm sad about something or upset about something? Or are you compassionate? Do you get down there in the trench with me? Do you help me out and, and help me back up and all that? It's really, really important. How do people handle power? You have to know that before you commit to them, which is why you don't have sex before you find out how people handle power in relationships. Be vulnerable. Be upset. Don't hide things. Don't pretend to be strong, right? This is not, you know, it's an old saying the a man's, greatest weakness is his, is his pretense of strength, just as a woman's greatest strength is her pretense of weakness. Don't pretend to have it all together when you don't. Don't pretend to be strong. Be vulnerable. That way you find out how a woman, in this case, handles power over you. Does she abuse it? Does she roll her eyes? Does she scathe you? Does she, uh-huh. Or does she merely pretend to be compassionate? And the reason you do that is because that's putting yourself in a more childlike position relative to the woman, and it's a little preview of what she's going to be like as a mother. Because when you're a parent, you have such an astonishing authority over your child. That I mean, this is why you need the very lightest touch. You know, if you've got your lips right up against someone's ears, you need to whisper, not scream. Otherwise, you're going to end up in some let the bullets hit the floor video, right? I like it when people notice these. Uh, I put in a bad lieutenant reference in a video in the past and people, one person got it. One person got it. So be vulnerable. And if the person handles your vulnerability with grace and sensitivity and compassion, then you can trust them with your heart and you can trust them with your children. All right. A couple more questions? A couple more questions. All right. What have I missed? Let me scroll down to the bottom here. Nice to see so many people on a, and and the stream went is going well, right? Uh, somebody said, "Hey, Steph, I sent you an email regarding being twenty-four and feeling inert, failure to launch, still living with parents. I desperately wish to do a call-in soon. I've got a stutter. If that's okay, it is totally fine. I bet you that um, uh, it won't be uh, it won't be a problem. And yes, uh, if you want to send in uh, operations at freedomainradio.com, please uh, do do that. So." all right send it in what do youtube analytics say about the viewers of your channel um a lot of middle-aged uh people um so 25 to sort of 45 and uh, a surprising number of women of course and that's partly because i talk about relationships and parenting and so on like that all right uh can men lose their ability to pair bond can it be regained uh yes uh, yes, uh, I think a man can lose his ability to pair bond, and it's when you stop trusting your penis. I hate to sort of put it that bluntly, but if you stop trusting your penis, in other words, if your your lust, your balls, your penis keep leading you into these man traps, into these uh, gorilla cages, into these uh, bear claw things where you just get hurt, then you stop trusting your your lust and now there's nothing bad in terms of stop trusting your lust but if you then say well i'm not going to be attracted to anyone then you just steer clear of of any desire and that's no good hey stefan how complete is communism in the west well among the millennials it's a third up because a third of millennials have a positive view of communism all right what advice would you give to someone like goodwill hunting skilled and high iq but not motivation drive or purpose uh, go back and this is what happens in the movie he so goes back to the uh he denormalizes right so robin williams denormalizes um will's justification for his child abuse denormalize denormalize all right uh hey steph i'm moving in with my girlfriend in two months do you have any advice it's been a wonderful relationship so far and we're excited But well, just get married then why are you moving in for What are you moving in for? Just get married. I mean, if you don't commit to the woman enough to to want to marry her and and make the vow forever, then what are you moving in for? It means that there's still some part of you that's not committed. So I would say, right? Uh, What do you think about the rise in homeschooling? Well, oddly enough, it seems to coincide with the rise of teaching children about anal sex. So I would say that that's perfectly uh, understandable. When do you think Bitcoin will gain mass adoption? Well, when there's more... A... um, uh when fiat currency goes through its big mess and of course the fed is inflating the stock market with a lot of inflation and so on so uh yeah that's when it's going to be right all right let's see here anything else anything else do you think the concept of transhumanism and humans radically integrating with technology at a biological and mental level is a big issue to consider for humanity's future well It's not the violation of the non-aggression principle. I would say go for it. Thoughts on 5G? I don't know enough about it. I've heard that people are very alarmed by it. I've also heard that it doesn't really matter. So I have sort of, you know, when noticing that, I mean, two Canadian rock stars died of brain tumors recently, um, Gord Downey from The Tragically Hip, the singer, and Neil Peart. Sorry, I thought it was Peart. I really did. Neil Peart, the drummer for Rush, uh, I think that um, Gord Downey was in his fifties. Neil Peart was sixty-seven, and there were people saying that uh, it's partly due to radiation with people glued, with the cell phones glued to their head. And again, I'm no expert on this. It's just my particular thought. Uh, don't uh, don't don't jam high radiation devices up against your your brain or your body a lot. Like I don't like these women who carry their um, cell phones in their bra or in their back pockets. It's like you know, get a little pocket, get a little shield or whatever it is, and use a a headset and try and keep that thing away from you and don't sleep with it under your pillow and just get get ear, ear air tubes or like so non-radiation headphones and so on that's what i use here so i would just say mm, keep it keep it further back Have you seen the documentary, The Game Changers? Uh, That's a nutrition documentary, right? I did watch a little bit of it. Um, I haven't watched any more, simply because I've watched a lot of documentaries where people are like, oh, this is the solution, and it changed my life, and it's perfect, and I try the stuff, and it doesn't really do that much, and I end up drifting back to all the food I grew up with, but less of it. So, Let's see here. Getting married after only five months of dating seems kind of fast, but we're on the route to marriage, I believe, but advice upon moving in would be awesome. Well, why don't you wait? I mean... I proposed to my wife after a couple of months of marriage and we were married within 11 months of meeting each other. So, I would say that um wait until you like why are you rushing? why are you hurrying, right? Uh wait until you're ready to marry and then uh get to get together. Uh what's better, gold or bitcoin? <laughs> why does it have to be one one or the other? All right. Um do you think there's a place for legal immigration? You seem to be completely against it, but it doesn't violate the non-aggression principle. Also, it has definite economic benefits. Well, not to the people that those immigrants are competing with. I mean, have some compassion for the people those immigrants are competing with. Think, Have some compassion for all of the young men, mostly young men, who were told, boy, get yourself a computer science degree, because that's the way of the future. It's like, oh, sorry, no, we're importing 12 million people from India. It's like, you know, have some compassion for all of that, so... Let's see. All pl- all movies are propaganda. Um, yeah. I mean, all art is propaganda to a, to a large degree because it is, it's an attempt to replicate the worldview of the artist into you. So it's kind of like an infection, but you can be infected with good stuff too. What happened with your wife? <laughs> I don't know. There's this is rumor out that I'm divorced or she left me or something like that. Uh, no. <laughs> no. Uh, let's see here. Stefan, thank you for your job. Um, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thank you for your support out there. I have not read Butterfield Eight by Tennessee Williams uh, and uh, all of that. I have not. Uh, this, uh, maybe I will one day, but uh, time. Time is uh, not. Uh, time is not. Uh, there's not a lot of time for me these days. So, all right. Uh, okay, I think we uh, we can close things off here. Hour and a half. Yeah, I think that's fair. Fair enough. Well, thanks everyone uh, for dropping by. It was a real pleasure to chat with you guys. Great questions. I hope that you enjoyed uh, the answers. I know I did. So uh, yeah, thanks so much, guys. I really, really appreciate this test. I'm glad that it worked out. Maybe I can up myself a little bit uh, further from here. And have yourselves a lovely and wonderful and toasty weekend. Uh, Lots of love from me here to you. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux to get notified of these. And also, uh, you know, like and share and subscribe when this is done. Thanks, everyone, so much. Take care.